Acts chapter 13, if you have a Bible or a device, (laughs) open with me there. We're getting into uh, the, the meat of Paul the Apostle's first missionary journey. We saw in Acts chapter 12 where uh, Paul and Barnabas, actually Barnabas and Saul is how it's listed, had traveled down to Jerusalem to take an offering because there was a famine, a worldwide famine. And then we saw the interaction with Peter and uh, going to a woman named Mary's house whose son was John Mark, which is actually Barnabas's cousin. And uh, could you cut the light down on that a little bit, Doug? Thanks. I don't know why, but that one just kind of got like the surface of the sun. (laughs) Thank you. Anyway, so uh, they go, uh, Barnabas and Saul go to Jerusalem and they end up at the house of a woman named Mary's house. Uh, And her son was John Mark, uh, Barnabas' cousin. And, And then Peter is freed from jail and he ends up showing up at Mary's house. We have to assume that Paul and Barnabas or Saul and Barnabas were there uh, because they had a, a big prayer meeting going, praying for Peter, uh, for God to be merciful to Peter. And Peter's out knocking on the front gate. <laughs> Great scene. So their work concluded there. Barnabas and Saul head back to Antioch and uh, they spend some time there. And there, and we saw again, uh, last week, beginning of chapter 13, that uh, the church there is committed to prayer. And they're, they're spending time ministering to the Lord. We looked at that interesting statement that is ministering to the Lord and spending time in fasting and prayer, uh, seeking God's direction for that church. Because now the scene shifts from the church in Jerusalem, because, I mean, the church in Jerusalem within 20 years would be wiped out when the Romans came in and uh, uh, in 70 and under Titus uh, and, and decimate the city. So uh, the gospel is now being extended to the Gentiles and Antioch becomes the base of the Gentile church. So... Barnabas and Saul head back up there and they're praying and all. And the church and they conclude that they are to be sent out. Now, not sent out. We looked at the difference. The rendering is a little weird in in some of the translations of the Bible that they were released by the church and sent out by the Holy Spirit. And that's an important decision to make. I have known, I had somebody... uh, quote, prophesy over me as a young Christian that I was going to be headed for the mission field and I'd spend my life as a missionary in some distant land. And had I believed that, I probably would have been one of the guys that went instead of one of the guys that was sent. (laughs) And we see here that uh, John Mark goes along with Barnabas and Saul. However, he went (laughs) and we'll see what happens with that. This morning. So they go from Antioch to the island of Cyprus. They land at a place called Salamis, which is on the western or the eastern shore of the island. And uh, they begin there. They work their way the hundred miles or so across the island of Cyprus to uh, a place called a city, the main city, the capital city of the island called Paphos. And there they run into a guy, uh, by the name of Elimus, uh, who was 
a false prophet and a sorcerer. <laughs> and Elimus gets his back up about uh, Barnabas and Saul because he was the spiritual advisor to uh, a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus. And he was the guy that was the head guy for the whole island. He was the government official uh, there on Cyprus. He was the proconsul. And so uh, Paul gets up into this guy's face and says, <laughs> you're not going to get any traction here. I'm paraphrasing greatly. Uh, and But he calls a curse down from God on this guy, and he is blinded right there on the spot. Well, Sergius Paulus sees all of that, and because of the way that Paul had handled this, he comes to faith. He comes, he believes the gospel. He believes the message, and he sees that the message is validated by the power that Paul uses and he exerts there. At that point, we see the very first time where he is no longer called Saul, which is his Jewish name, but now he's addressed as Paul. And there's also a shift that we'll see here uh, uh, in verse 13. It says, now when Paul and his party, his companions, set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John departing from them returned to Jerusalem. So we see now that the order has been switched up. The leadership has changed. It's no longer Barnabas and Saul. It's Paul and his companions. Uh, and it's not that having top billing is the important thing here. What it's showing us, and Luke is very careful when he renders the text, that, that there has been a shift. And think about it. I mean, Barnabas was a Jew uh, from Cyprus, had grown up in Jerusalem, Cyprus, and lived in Jerusalem. And John Mark was a Jew from Jerusalem. Paul was Jewish, but he also had Roman citizenship. So it would only be the the the, the logical conclusion that as God raised Paul up, Saul, and he now became Paul, that he would take the lead, reaching the Gentiles, because now we're in Gentile territory. A Gentile, obviously, is anybody that's not Jewish. So they're taking the gospel now. It's gone to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and now they're beginning with this journey to go to the uttermost parts. Just as Jesus had prophesied the day that he was lifted up from them and he ascended uh, into heaven. So now this trip that they're talking about here, there's a lot of things that are going on. Uh, and we'll look a little bit at the geography here. Uh, from Paphos to Perga was about 170 miles by boat. Obviously, it's across the Mediterranean Sea. Perga was about five miles inland. And the reason for that, at least it's widely believed, is because there were a lot of marauders and robbers and criminals uh, that traveled by sea and they would go up and down the coast and, and steal your stuff uh, or kill you, one or the other. And so Perga, was a, it was a protected city. They protected it by moving it inland and away from the seafaring robbers. Uh, now, it talks about Perga and Pamphylia. Pamphylia would be like the, the region there. And we also see Pamphylia plays a part on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, because there Luke lists a whole bunch of people from all over the empire that were there when the Holy Spirit was poured out 
Pamphylia is one of the regions, one of the areas listed. And so these are people that have been exposed to the gospel. They've been exposed to the message of Christ. And now Paul is following up by going to their town. It says that Mark, John Mark, uh, <laughs> returns home. Now, it says that he returned to Jerusalem. Now, he had come from Antioch, but remember, his home was in Jerusalem. And there's a lot of speculation as to why, and I don't want to engage in too much of it. I'll give you a few possible scenarios. Uh, it could have been that he was dis- disillusioned with the change in leadership. I mean, here, cousin Barney <laughs> had been the leader, and now Paul is being the one who steps to the front. We don't know. Uh, they were related, and, and I'm sure that there was probably some favoritism going on there. It could also be, I don't know if you remember, when Jesus went to the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, there in the Gospel of John, remember when he goes, he sends the guys off to town to go get lunch and then come back, and he has this whole interaction with the Samaritan woman. She's blown away because he told her, quote, everything I ever did, and and he has shown her, demonstrated to her that he's the Messiah. Well, about that time, the guys come wandering back up, coming back from town, and they're pretty blown away, pretty upset, actually, that Jesus is engaging a Samaritan woman. It's like, what are you doing with her? Uh, remember, there are hundreds and hundreds of years of bias between these people. And so now the gospel is going to the Gentiles and John Mark, being a good Jewish boy, he may have wrestled with that. It wasn't unusual that the Jews wrestled. We see that by the end of this chapter, they're wrestling a lot. Uh, Great (laughs) deal uh, of of anger and and the threat of violence hanging over uh, Paul and Barnabas by the time we're finished. And we're not going to get through the rest of the chapter today. It could also be, Doug, can you show the title slide for a minute there? If you notice, there's a mountain, yeah, the first slide. The title slide, not the map. There you go. It could also be that this trip was going to be a really dangerous trip. If you see, the, notice the mountains in the distance there. When, when they got to Perga and Paul outlined to John Mark, this is where we're going. He pointed over the top of those mountains. They were called, the, they're, they're known as the Taurus Mountains. Remember the Ford Taurus? That's what I think of. It. Look at, that. At any rate, the Taurus Mountains, and they were rugged, rugged mountains. And John Mark might have looked at that and thought, Oh, you know, I think I got some stuff. I got some overdue books at the library back in Jerusalem or something. Uh, and he may have bailed on him for that reason. He could have just been homesick. Uh, we pretty reasonably conclude that even though he's Barnabas' cousin, that he's younger, probably quite a bit younger than Barnabas. Uh, he was accustomed to taking care of his mother, uh, Good chance she was a widow because it doesn't talk about his father uh, there in chapter uh, 12. It talks about his mother's house. So we don't know. But whatever the reason, the point here is 
Paul saw that Mark leaving was that he was deserting them. And he was not happy about it. Uh, when we get to chapter 15, we'll see uh, there's quite a bit of upset that comes out because Barnabas wants to bring John Mark along again. And Paul says, absolutely not. No way. We saw what he did back there. I ain't going to go through that again and on and on. So uh, we do know that there was there was a pretty good sized disagreement between Barnabas and Paul over this guy. Now, I want to caution something here, and that's uh, this. John Mark, did, did he fail? Probably. But folks, don't consign him to you know, the, 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 the has-beens in this. Have grace. Uh, he ends up going out with Barnabas after chapter 15, and, and the work actually splits in half to where now there are two teams going out and evangelizing uh, the empire. And Barnabas, remember his name translates son of encouragement. And so he would have been a great encourager for his nephew and saying, you know, yeah, maybe that wasn't the greatest move, but, you know, God still loves you and we're going to move forward from here and, and all of that. In Colossians chapter 4, it's very certain, in my mind anyway, looking at the whole counsel of God, the, all of the scriptures, that Paul and Mark reconciled. Uh, in Ch- Colossians 4, Paul, when he's writing ahead to this church at Colossae, he says, welcome, John Mark. He's a fellow worker from the circumcision. He's a, he's a, a, a Jewish Christian, and he's one of us. So welcome him. In Second Timothy, uh, which is Paul's sort of his swan song, uh, he's giving final instructions where he is there in Rome in the Mamertine prison. Been there, not a good place. Uh, he knows he's on death row, that his execution is imminent. He says there in Second Timothy, I'm about to be poured out as a drink offering. What that means is I'm about done. And during that time, when he's asking Timothy, he's saying, look, bring the parchments, bring my cloak. It's cold. I, I get that. He also says, bring Mark. He says, he's been profitable to me in the ministry. So was this a permanent rift? No, I don't think so at all. The other thing about Mark is you got to remember, he ends up hanging out with Peter a lot. Uh, Peter being uh, sort of the de facto head of the church at Jerusalem at this point. And when John Mark goes back to Jerusalem, uh, and the way that we know that is if you look at the gospel of Mark, many scholars believe that that is Peter's memoirs written down through the hand of Mark. And so Mark goes on to have a very fruitful ministry. He becomes, I mean, he's (laughs) chronicled (laughs) in the word of God as being one of the people that was anointed to put these things down. And so, yeah, this is a failure for him. But I'm so glad that we serve a God of grace. In verse 14, we read, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. So Antioch and Pisidia. Now there's a lot going on between these two verses, between verse 13 and verse 14. Now, Pisidia, it was 
part of a, it was a Roman pro, province uh, that was in existence until about 25 BC when the king of Pisidia died. At that point, the emperor rolled the Pisidia into the territory known as Galatia. You go back to the map there. So you see that Galatia, the green area, Pisidia is part of that area now. That's why I titled the study, uh, The Galatians. Now we're not, and don't get that confused with the book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians, which Paul would write after this journey, and we'll get to talking about that uh, probably next week, uh, because they start well, <laughs> and then they get side-railed, they're derailed and, and sidetracked into this whole thing. Uh, again, I could I could just go right into that, but the point remains is that the book of Galatians is to a group of churches, uh, beginning here in Antioch, Pisidia, and then uh, the churches to the the east of them, uh, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, they're all part of the churches in Galatia that Paul would reach, Paul and Barnabas would reach on this journey. And they're all part of the people that got lumped in when Paul wrote back to them after this journey and said, look, you're getting some things really, really wrong and I need to correct you. Galatians is the hottest letter in the New Testament. He is hopping mad when he writes that. And he says, look, if you're going to make it all about the Jewish law, then you better figure that you're going to have to fulfill the whole thing. So the Galatians. Now we're up in Galatia. Other thing about that is that Paul evidently became very sick somewhere along this journey. Uh, again, marrying different aspects of the New Testament, uh, he probably, most probably, uh, but it's up for some debate, got sick while he was in Perga. I have some personal opinions about what happened to him. I believe he got malaria because he goes on and he talks about problems with his eyes after that. And one of the things that there's a, a condition called malarial retinopathy, which did, malaria wrecks people's eyes. And um, malaria, Perga was subject to malaria outbreaks. In Galatians 4, uh, Paul says he's, he's preaching to the people in Galatia. He says, because of an illness, I preach the gospel to you. Not in spite of it, I might add. Uh, in Galatians 4.12, we read, Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? So he talks about the illness that he had. And that's on this trip. He's writing back to these churches in Galatia. He goes on to say in Galatians chapter 6, See with what large letters I'm writing to you. Again, we don't know exactly what he talks in 2 Corinthians about a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12 that he had. He never mentions what it is. But we do know that he got very sick on this journey. Now, 
a couple of things about that. Uh, from Perga, it was about 120 miles up to Antioch and Pisidia. As I mentioned, you got to go over the Taurus Mountains. There was a 3,600-foot elevation gain from sea level to where Antioch was. So, again, I can't stress how difficult this trip would have been, especially if Paul is suffering with malaria, if he's got the remnants of it anyway, and he's dealing with this physical infirmity. It could be that he went to Antioch and Pisidia so that he could pick up some stuff that was called Phrygian powder. And I don't want to get off totally sidetracked on that, but he had to go through the region that was known as Phrygia. And in Laodicea, the church, the letter to the church at Laodicea, Jesus advises the people in that church to buy some eye salve from him. In other words, to clear up your spiritual blindness. And what's used there is Phrygian powder. It was a powder or an ointment that was made in the, the region of Phrygia that was used to treat people's eye problems. So again, he, that may have been what drove him up to get away from where the malaria was and to get to where he could find a cure. We also know that Sergius Paulus, the guy that was the proconsul from Cyprus, his family had, and Roman history tells us that his family had a large estate up in that area. So having brought him to the Lord, that might have been what drove he and Barnabas up there as well. We don't know. But we do know that it was straight up (laughs) when he made that trip uh, over the Taurus Mountains. Second Corinthians, as a matter of fact, he talks about the perils that he endured in his different journeys. And one of the things, or a couple of things you see, he talks about perils of rivers. Uh, he talks about perils of robbers. Uh, this area, this region was also known. There were a lot of guys, a lot of robbers that hid out in the hills that when people were traveling the known roads that would rob them and do them harm. So uh, Paul was exposed to that as well. And that's very possibly, uh, he's thinking back as he writes uh, in Second Corinthians about this journey. So he goes into the synagogue and he sits down. Now, what rabbis did in those days when they were going to teach is they would sit and the people would stand. (laughs) Aren't you glad we don't do that now? You'd have been standing for about 20 minutes already. But the point is, he might have indicated his desire to speak that way. Uh, Again, we don't know because he does stand when he begins to speak because the Romans stood when they spoke. uh, Very much like we usually do. I went back to my chair. <laughs> I I always sat in a chair to teach just because it's comfortable and I can focus better up until COVID. Then I used the podium and then I've come back to using this. But that's just me. It's a personal preference. There's nothing about that that's spiritual. So in verse 15, we read, and after reading the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So a typical order of service at a synagogue was that uh, they would read from the Old Testament. They would usually begin with the Shema. uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then they would go on and, and the rulers of the synagogue would either give a sermon or they would invite visitors to do that. 
Now, they probably didn't just tag anybody that walked in the door. However, if Paul had become known to them, you've got to remember, he is the Pharisee, Saul, uh, from the school of Gamaliel. This this guy, he's like <laughs> saying, you know, I, I'm a, and Harvard's a liberal school, but it'd be like, you know, he was educated at Harvard and he knows his stuff. Uh, also, Barnabas, being a Jew uh, from Jerusalem, he was also a Levite. Both of these guys very likely were treated very well as they came in. They were probably honored, even revered guests at the synagogue. Paul uses that. He does this wherever he goes in the empire. And we'll see what he does here as he begins to speak. And you'll see in his letters and all through the rest of the book of Acts, when he shows up, he goes to the synagogue. Uh, he had some political clout. He had some political currency. He had some spiritual currency to have an in with these people. Somebody dropped their watch. <laughs> so as he begins to speak, I was reminded as I looked at this in our men's group last Monday night, uh, one of the things we talked about was the five elements of biblical truth that we look at as we share the gospel with others. We look at God, again, right to the beginning of Genesis, God. Uh, and then we look at man, don't get very far in be- before God creates man. He sees that that's good. He gives man woman, and then things go terribly wrong. <laughs> I didn't mean it to sound that way. Okay, maybe a little. No, I'm kidding. No, it, but I mean, things go terribly wrong in the garden. And, and, and virtually the rest of his word is devoted towards setting things right, towards bringing man back into fellowship with him, towards God doing the work. How does he do it? If God, man, and then Jesus being the one, the sent one, and then the cross and the resurrection. And as I read this, I thought, wow, this kind of follows that same pattern. Uh, and, and But Paul, he actually breaks it down into three parts, but he covers all five of those. And this, this is his very first sermon. This is the first time that he speaks publicly in a synagogue that we have recorded for us anyway. He may have done that when he went back to Tarsus for a few years and all of that. We don't know. So the way it breaks down is verses 16 through 25. He starts with men of Israel. Okay, guys, countrymen, brothers, listen up. He talks about God's faithfulness to Israel up until the coming of Messiah. And we're going to look at that the rest of our time this morning. In verses 26 through 37, he begins with men and brethren. Hey, brothers. And he appeals to them. And that's where he talks about, he segues, and we'll see that at the end of our time this morning. He segues from Old Testament history into the relevance, the current relevance of Christ and how Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that was looking forward in the Old Testament. So he talks about first God's faithfulness to Israel up until the coming of Messiah. And then he talks about the person and the work, the death and the resurrection of Messiah. And then in verses 38 to 41, and folks, this is really important. And when we get there, when we talk about this next week, uh, we will spend more time on it. He issues a warning. Straight up, the gospel 
going out without a warning is not the whole gospel because eternity is on the line. I, I was not able to go to the last days conference yesterday, but those in our church that did heard that same thing. There's a warning. The age is coming to a close. And folks, the people that are in our families, in our lives, our circle of friends, in our sphere, that don't know Christ, are in absolute peril. And Paul goes into that as he wraps up this section here in chapter 13. He issues a warning, and he essentially says, look, a response to the gospel is necessary. It's not optional. You can't ride the fence. There is no fence. Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. So that's really important for us to understand. Again, we'll talk about it more next week, but that's the outline that Paul uses here. And I think it's interesting because he probably used this outline a lot. When, when we read in the other letters that he reasoned with the people from the scriptures when he would go to the synagogue, they don't tell us what he said most often. Well, here Luke does tell us what he said. And this is probably the same outline that he used when he went from place to place to place. He'd worked his way across the island of Cyprus. And now he's gone from Pamphylia up to uh, Antioch in Pisidia. And he's beginning to teach the men here. Verse 16, it says, And he stood up and motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. I, I would love to be a fly on the wall. Because I would imagine, and I'll tell you what, very often Paul faced a ton of pushback when he would begin to teach, when he would open his mouth. Here, this week, he doesn't. It, whatever. This week, he doesn't. As a matter of fact, his message is so powerful and it's so well received that when he comes back the next Sabbath, the whole city turns out. They're thinking, what is going on? This message is so radical. This message is so... I, I, and the Holy Spirit was being poured out. And there was a revival in Antioch through the things that are being said here. So when he goes through this, it's important that we understand this is probably a pattern of how he taught when he would go and reason from the scriptures. So he stands up. Again, the Romans stood. Jews sat when they taught. And he quiets the crowd. He, it says that he motions with his hand. He's like, okay, settle down. And he begins to address the Jews, the Gentiles, who are attending the synagogue. Now, he says, those of you who fear God. Now, there, with the Jews, there were Jews who were Jews by birth, or, or Israeli Jews. And there were also Jews who were called proselytes. And those are guys that had converted from some pagan heathenistic religion, a Roman gods and all of that, that they converted to Judaism. And they were called, they were proselytes. There was another group that were guys that, uh, men and women who had embraced the teachings of the Old Testament, but had not converted to Judaism. They were sort of on the outside looking in. They were known as God-fearers. They were the ones that had come to fear God, that had come to revere him, but had not identified with Judaism. 
And they had, they had just identified with the God of Israel, not with the religion of, of the Israelites. So when he says, men of Israel, you and you who fear God, that's what he's talking about. Remember, he is in a Gentile city. And yeah, there's a synagogue there, but there's a lot of Gentiles that are coming to hear what he has to say. I also have to wonder, if you go back and you look at what Stephen has to say in Acts chapter 7, and, and, and how he recounts Israel's history, and, and the religious leaders rush up on him and they kill him, and, and we're told there that Saul was there holding the cloaks of those who were throwing the rocks. Because at that time, he, he had not converted. He hadn't had his Damascus Road experience. And he looked and he saw this guy's face glowing as he spoke. The outline here has definite, definite tones of what Stephen says there. It must have, it had to have had a profound impact on him. As Paul went from there, and now it's years later, probably talked about 14 to 17 years later, and yet he's following the example that Stephen set there. I, I love the saying that if you study 12 people, you're a scholar. If you study one, you're a plagiarist. Well, Paul's probably doing some hefty plagiarizing here, but you got to remember too, as Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. And so he's giving the same message because it is the message. It's the supreme message of God to man. One of the differences here is that Paul, he's more concise than Stephen was. He, he doesn't take as long to lay out what he lays out. Uh, but he starts in Genesis and he works his way forward. He comes all the way up to Jesus in just a few verses here. Uh, in verse 17, he says, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them all out of it. So verse 17, he covers from Genesis 12 to Exodus 12, essentially. We have chapter numbers. They didn't have them then. But he starts in Genesis, works right into Exodus. He speaks first of the prosperity of the Jewish people. Remember, Joseph had gone down to Egypt and he had come to a place of prominence. And then there was a famine in Israel. And his brothers come down and they actually stay there for 400 years. They prosper. Uh, at first, and then they prospered to the point where they'd become so prosperous that uh, we're told that a Pharaoh was raised up that knew not Joseph, and he thought, you know, this is kind of a threat. These people have gotten way too numerous, and so he put them in bondage. Talks about their captivity and their deliverance from Egypt. Remember, the people cried out, and Moses was raised up as the deliverer, a type for Jesus Christ. So it begins a review of Old Testament history with the choosing of Israel from among the nations and the call of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the fathers of the nation. They were the ones that got raised up. That remember Abraham, he said, go to the land that I'll show you and where I tell you to pitch your tent, that's it. And he did. Well, hundreds of years later, the people come back into the land. He also says, with an uplifted arm, God brought them out of Egypt. Now, I want you to understand that the Bible tells us that God is spirit. So sometimes people get a little twisted up because they say, well, with an outstretched arm. 
No, he's using human terms to describe something that's really not describable. What we're talked about, remember we've looked at, the arm of the Lord is the power and the presence of God. And so with the power and the presence of God coming to bear against the Egyptians and for the Israelites, that's how God brought them out. In Exodus chapter 6, God says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. He didn't stretch out a big arm and pull him out. Uh, it's called an anthropomorphic term. What that means is using human terms to assign something to the activity of God, which is pretty well beyond our ability to understand. Just That's free. Uh, no charge for that. But that's what those kind of terms are. Uh, not in my notes. Verse 18, now for a short, now for a time of about 40 years, he put the, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. I love that. I picture God with his arms folded like, you know, I, I'm just putting up with you. And that's essentially what he did. Because remember, the people failed to go into the land. They said, no, 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 no. They got 11 days out from Egypt and God took them to the edge of Canaan, the promised land, they sent the spies in, they came back and said, Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, we could do it, you know, God's with us and all that. And the rest of the spies said, oh, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. We can't do this. They're just too too big, too powerful. You know, we're going to go in there and get smushed and all of that stuff. Again, loosely paraphrasing. But that was what happened. And God said, fine, you don't want to go in? You're not going in. And so for 40 years, they wandered in the wilderness and nobody over the age of 20 went into the land. They all died. But he did preserve the next generation to go in and to come in and inhabit the land. So 11 days essentially turned into 40 years. Their refusal refusal to enter the land. We're told in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews uh, chapter 4 lays it out very clearly. It says they didn't enter in because of unbelief. They did not trust God, that if God said the land is yours, that guess what? The land is ours. They balked when they got to the edge. They balked rather than to trust that God had uh, made provision for them to come in. Were there enemies in the land? Were there obstacles? You bet. How often do we face obstacles in our lives and we think, I don't know how that's going to work out. I don't know how we're going to get around it. I don't know what God's going to do with this. Oh my goodness. And yet he does. I, I love the fact when uh, when my heart stopped in August and it was literally laying dead in a parking lot that my wife had a prophetic word from the Lord and she said, God's not done with him yet. She had every human reason to believe he was done with me because I was done at that moment. And yet... And yet, uh, I love in Ephesians 4, uh, that term, or Ephesians 2, but God, being rich in his mercy. So he continues from there. He goes into the books of Joshua and Judges. In verse 19, he says, And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet And you think about, if you're a Bible scholar, you look at that and you go, wait a minute. And I sat and added it up on my chart the other night. The judges ruled Israel for about 325 to 350 years. So what's he talking about? He's saying that he gave them judges uh, for about 450 years. Well, 
Later manuscripts clarify this, or actually they're earlier manuscripts that they were found later uh, than when this was translated in the King James and the New King James. The New American Standard renders it like this, and, and when you read this, it makes total sense. It says, when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land as an inheritance, all of which took about 450 years. 400 years in Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness, and 7 to 10 years to, for the conquest of the land. 450 years. After these things, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, when we talk about Samuel here, Samuel's an interesting guy. He is actually the last of the judges in Israel. And they were guys that, uh, and a woman, Deborah, uh, that were raised up to rule Israel before the kings came along. All right? And he had a whole series of judges during this 325, 350 years, however long it was. Uh, and Samuel was the last of them. But he was also the first of the prophets. When you know, we talk about the prophets in the Old Testament, Samuel, see, yeah, Moses prophesied. He was a uh, prophet in that sense. But guys that were specifically raised up to prophesy, uh, Samuel's the first one. Interesting, too, that uh, Samuel's ministry was very similar to the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, we talk about types. You know what a type is? It's an impression from the Old Testament. Yeah, he is a type for John the Baptist. Uh, both of these guys, both Samuel and John, were lifelong Nazarites. And that might not mean a lot to you, but if you were uh, of a certain ilk in Israel and you took the vow of a Nazarite, the word Nazarite comes from Nazar and literally means to abstain from or to consecrate yourself to something. Uh, and when they took the vow of a Nazarite, the, the, the outward sign of that is they had uncut hair. They never cut their hair. I think that's an interesting visual. And they abstained from wine and, and all of that. So both John and Samuel were Nazarites, lifelong. And both of them were forerunners of Davidic kings. Interesting. Samuel introduced and served David the first uh, in the divinely appointed kingly lineage. All right, so Samuel appoints and serves David. John introduced and served Jesus, the last of that lineage, and and an heir and the fulfillment of all the promises that God had made to King David. So both of these guys were forerunners to the king's. He continues, he goes into 1 Samuel in verse 21, and afterward they asked for for a king. Now, I looked it up in the original. I'm going to go into the, the Greek, the etymology of the Greek and all that. But they asked is not, it's not the clearest translation. What that word asked there, it's actually, it renders, they urgently demanded a king. <laughs> they said, we want a king like the other nations. Meh. All right, I added the way, but that was what they were doing. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. I love, this is the first time in God's word where God essentially says, be careful for what you ask for. They wanted a king, they got a king. He started okay, but he did not end well, and he was not good for Israel. In 1 Samuel 9, 
we read that Kish the Benjamite had a, a choice of handsome, or a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. Uh, there was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel for his shoulders, from his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. So this guy is striking looking. He's a man's man. He could have made commercials. You know, he's, this is the guy that, yeah, he kind of waltzes onto the stage and says, hello everybody. <laughs> uh, glad you came to see me. <laughs> kind of a guy. And, um, he didn't, again, he didn't do well. They judged on the outward. Verse 22, and when God had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. What a difference. What he's saying is, this is my choice. You guys got your choice with Saul. And now I'm going to give you my choice. This is a guy that is after my own heart. And he will do all of my will, we're told, in verse 22. So interestingly enough, you look at these two men's lives, you see that both David and Saul had failed miserably. David goes on to, you know, spy out Uriah the Hittite's wife, Bathsheba. Oh, she's bathing. He takes her. He makes her his wife. Sends her son, her, her husband out in the thick of the battle and has everybody pull back. So he gets killed in battle. And it's not until a couple of years later that Nathan the prophet confronts him over it. Uh, but Saul here, we know that he failed miserably. He took priestly sacrifices on to himself. He chased David around in a jealous rage for 10 years because David was anointed king and he wasn't. Even when he talks to the prophet Samuel, he talks to Samuel about your God. You go sacrifice to your God. He doesn't even own the fact that it's his God. So why would be Saul be condemned and David vindicated? One word, gang, and it's a word that applies to us today. Repentance. Simply repentance. That means to change your mind. To stop going the direction you're going, turn around and go the other way. Saul... When confronted with his sin, he acknowledged his sin to David only, but not to God. David, if you read Psalm 51, one of the first things that he says there is against you and you only have I sinned, O Lord, and done what is evil in your sight. Yeah, David had sinned against men, but he knew ultimately, ultimately that his sin was against God. And folks, that's something for us to keep in mind because we all fail. We'll talk about that in a minute. So when we think about King David, we think about, you know, he was the scrawny kid out in the field. Uh, when Samuel goes to anoint the new king, uh, God tells him, okay, go to the house of Jesse and there you're going to find my choice. So he goes in, and of course in Israel, the oldest son, he's the guy that gets the prize, right? That's how they set it up. That's how God set it up. So in 1 Samuel sixteen seven, it says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I've rejected him. He's talking about Eliab, David's oldest son. Samuel went in there thinking, here's the guy. Wow, what a strikingly handsome guy. He's, you know, he's, don't look at his stature. Don't look at his appearance. 
Samuel was falling into the same trap that had gotten Saul appointed as king. And God is saying, no, 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 Samuel, he's not the one. He goes on, he says, for God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I praise God for that. I totally do. God looks at the heart. Thinking about Jesus, uh, one of the great prophecies of the Old Testament about Christ. Part of my testimony, part of what drew me out of the LDS church at 20-some years old and, and into a precious relationship with Christ. is In Isaiah 53, it says, He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. So Saul, he looked like a star. Eliab, he was pretty good. He, look at the height of the statue. Don't look at that. Don't, don't think about this guy. That outwardly looks good. I'm looking for somebody with a heart. He goes through all of the sons of Jesse and he goes, anybody else say, well, yeah, the kid out in the field. And they bring him in. Saul dumps the horn of oil on him. And you, if you know the, the word, you, you know the story. He gets anointed king right there on the spot. Doesn't actually take the throne for a few years because he has some training to go through at the hands of the Lord, at the hands of Saul. But that's the story. Verse 23, from this man's David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a savior. Now, this is where Paul departs from the Old Testament narrative. And he goes in and he begins to talk about John the Baptist, who literally is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, even though God had become very quiet for 400 years after Malachi stopped prophesying. Nobody spoke for God for 400 years until John the Baptist came onto the scene. So he says, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus, verse 24, after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So he talks about the promised Messiah from David's seed here. Psalm 132, 11 says, the Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back of the fruit of your body. I will set upon your throne. There are many promises in the Old Testament that point to Jesus being the fulfillment of the kingly line of David. That's one of the more prominent ones. So when he talks about John the Baptist, he talks about a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. You got to understand this is not the same baptism that we have as Christians. I've heard people try to postulate that it is, and it's not. What John did is he issued a national call to repentance, which was evidenced by water baptism. He's saying, look, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent for the remission of your sins. In other words, he was making the way for the Messiah to come. Now we on this side of the cross, when we get baptized, that baptism is symbolic of being baptized into his death and raised to newness of life outward sign of an inward transaction that a powerful transaction in our hearts that hadn't happened yet when John was on the scene it's not the same baptism verse 25 and as John was finishing his course he said who do you think that I am I am not he but behold there comes one after me whose sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to lose so John the Baptist ministry lasted only about a year and a half it was 18 months 
But boy, was it a packed 18 months. He was busy <laughs> and uh, filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with power, preparing the way for Messiah. And now, in that culture, I want to add too, cleaning someone else's feet, that was a job that was reserved for the lowest of the low. In, in their households, they had servants, very often hired servants. Luke 15 talks about, in my father's house, there's hired servants, and they're eating better than I am, the prodigal son. But there are servants in there are slaves. This is something that was reserved for slaves to wash or to, to, to take the sandals off of someone's feet, to deal with their feet. They were in touch with the ground. They were considered unclean. And if you know anything about Judaism, the Jews were big about things that were unclean. And so that's what's going on. What John is saying here is I am not even, I don't even come to rise to the level of the lowest slave when it comes to this one that I'm introducing. So that only, that statement not only makes John's statement dramatic, but it highlights the significance of what we see with Jesus washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13. And he says, look, and, and folks, this is a message for the church just as relevant as it was in the upper room when Jesus washed their feet. So he wrapped himself with a towel and got a basin of water and he went to every one of the guy's feet, Judas included, I might add, and washed their feet and pulled the dirt off with his, with his apron, with its towel. He says, I've done this as an example for you. And he knew that these guys were going to go out and they were going to become leaders in the church. He's saying, look, if you don't understand the concept of going low, and folks, that's still the same today. If you aspire to the office of overseer, if you want to serve the Lord in any capacity, if you don't understand the concept of going low, you really don't need to serve. He says, I've done this. I'm your teacher. I'm your a master. A student's not greater than his, his, his teacher. And if I'm doing this for you, I'm setting an example. He, and he tells me right there, I'm doing this as an example. This is how I want you to serve. So verse 26 is the last verse we'll cover this morning. He says, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham uh, and those among you who fear God, to you, the word of this salvation has been sent. So he applies it. He says, I'm not giving you an abstract here. I'm not giving you a book report. I'm not telling you a story. This directly applies to you. And folks, the, the word of God is relevant. It's timeless in its application. And this, is, this thing applies to us. The word of his salvation has been sent. So Paul here addressing both Jew and God-fearing Gentiles, proselytes, he reasserts that the Savior has indeed come and the word of the salvation has gone out. And I'll tell you, I, I wish I could skip ahead because the response to this message after, and he'll finish, we'll finish it next week, is fabulous. I don't know how else to, to characterize it. There is an overwhelming response because they assemble, as I mentioned, the next week. It says the whole city turned out. I would, how oh, I'd love to see a revival spark in our community, in our culture. So next week we'll talk about the other two sections that I mentioned where he says men and brethren. He talks about the uh, the person and the work, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And then I'll also talk about the fact that a response is necessary because he gives a clear warning. 
And unless a person repents of their sin, they will die in their sins. That's the warning. So I want to wrap up and then we'll uh, receive communion together with three questions. And if you'll notice in the last few weeks, uh, I'm sort of switched things up a bit. Instead of just giving a teaching and leaving it at the end, uh, these are things that the Lord challenges me with. And so I'm, uh, the reason why I'm doing that is I want to challenge you. I want you to take these things to heart. Not because I say so, but because, again, uh, this isn't a book report. This is where we come with an expectation to hear from the Lord. And to say, bread of heaven, feed my soul. And as we do that, as we avail ourselves of God's word, He wants to do a transformation inside each of our hearts. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 50 years or 15 minutes. He is in the business of transforming hearts, transforming lives. So the first question, what does failure look like in your life? I've got some hefty ones and I'm not going to go into that. What does failure look like? What does true repentance look like? John Mark blew it. He failed. But he went on to fruitfully, faithfully serve God. The proof is in the rest of his word, as we see. King Saul, King David, failed miserably. David was restored. Saul was not. I think about, as I was looking at this, I was thinking about Jacob and Esau. And a passage in Hebrews 12 that talks about Esau with regard to repentance. It says Esau in Hebrew 12, Hebrews 12 says, for, who for one morsel of food sold, sold his birthright to his brother Jacob. He kind of got conned, but it's okay. He was still accountable for it. So, and the writer in Hebrews says, for you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it diligently with tears. Oh God, please, please, please forgive me. Please, please. And and I used to read that and think, that's kind of harsh. The guy comes crying before God. No, he really wasn't. Esau, like King Saul, was grieved over what he lost. Lost his birthright. God told Saul when Saul blew it, he said, I am taking the throne away from you. You don't get to be king anymore. Both of these, it says that he, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. No, it, it, I think that God would have been honored if he said when he wanted to get right with the Lord. But that wasn't his attitude. He was sorry for what he lost. Big difference. Saul, same thing. David was restored because he was grieved. Not at what he lost. And, and it cost him. Cost him the death of his son. And it cost him more. It cost him not being able to build the temple. You got too much blood on your hands, David. So he did suffer loss, but, 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 against you and you only have I sinned, Lord, and done what's evil in your sight. How's it going in areas where perhaps you've failed? Perhaps you're failing now in some area. I can't encourage you enough, my friend. Change your mind. Repent. Come back to the Lord. And, and, and acknowledge him in the midst of it. We have rebellious hearts. And at times we rebel. Let's be real. I love that God has made provision for every single one of us to be able to have a clean slate 
As I mentioned when we got started, his mercies are new every morning. Are you availing yourself of those mercies? He wants to pour it out. Very often he's waiting for us to confess our sins. Second thing, what impresses you? (laughs) Truly now, Hollywood? Oh, I hope not. (laughs) Especially these days. How about the latest trends? Yeah, I was looking at that. Stacy showed me a picture of a woman who had shaved her head up and, you know, had a little mop on top and, and all. And I thought, well, that's kind of the latest trend. And, and that's cool. I'm not, I'm not putting anybody down for that. You guys are laughing. <laughs> but, you know, I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying, that, is that what impresses you? Is that what floats your boat? We looked here, the tallest, the handsomest, the most beautiful arm candy. <laughs> what impresses you? Okay, I got some nods from the guys. You just scored some points with that. Beauty fades. I am living proof that gravity takes hold. <laughs> Our culture lies to us. It does. It lies to us all the time. Don't buy it. And one of the things that uh, I want for our church to be a place where everybody is comfortable. I told you, we're not going to paint the back wall black and bring in a smoking machine. Because we want to honor people of all ages here. And our culture seems to put an emphasis on youth and kind of sweep older people under the rug. We're not going to do that. We want to honor youth. We want to honor young people. We want to honor the older people. The seasoned saints. The point in all of that, it's not about outer appearances. It's not about how things look. It's not about the message that's telegraphed to me on social media or on television or in movies or any of that. God values the hidden things. First Peter chapter 3, uh, Peter, he's addressing women, but this easily applies to guys, so don't just pass it off. So that's too feminine for me, Pastor John. He says in First Peter 3, 3, don't let your uh, adornment be merely external or outward. Arranging the hair, wearing gold, putting on fine apparel. Those are things that were culturally <laughs> in those days. He says in verse 4, Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart. Ah. With the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. Paul, I mean, God busted Samuel's chops when it came to Eliab. He said, no, 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 he's not the one. He's the oldest, but he's not the one. I don't care how tall he is. I don't care how handsome he is. The scrawny field, out, the kid out in the field, he's the one that has a heart for me. That's what I'm looking for. The last thing. Is there room in your theology for God to direct or to redirect the course of your life through illness? I sit here as living proof that he does. How about through the trials that you go through? Paul says in Galatians 4, he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preach the gospel to you. I had to do that because I got sick. Not in spite of the fact that I got sick. Oh, wow, you know, I kind of got malaria along the way and it really kind of slowed me. No, 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 no. He says, I understood. And, And folks, here's the point. Paul understood that was all part of God's plan. I will never forget sharing with, uh, Bill Holdridge, one of the guys that filled in for me while I was uh, on my so-called sabbatical. Uh, 
said, Bill, I, he came to visit me in the hospital uh, during the, the month that I was there. And, and uh, I said, Bill, I've come to praise God for this heart attack. And I mean it. It was part of God's plan. Part of his plan. I've told you guys, I was praying about, do I retire from the ministry? Do I go on and do something else? And when I came out of that whole fog thing, and again, I don't need to go into it, but there was an absolute certainty in my heart that I needed to set some things right. I needed to do some repenting. And I also needed to come back and to see to it that my house was in order at home and here. It wasn't an option for me. And so it was through that infirmity that God redirected the course of my life. And I praise him for it. I truly do. Pastor Chuck Smith, the guy that founded the Calvary Chapel movement, was fond of uh, the saying, blessed are the flexible, for they shall not be broken. Be flexible. In the midst of trial, yeah, it doesn't feel good. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that, yeah, we'll be. It's tough. It's tough. Look at Job. He's in the Bible because of his infirmities. Look at Jacob. I'm not letting go until you bless me, Lord. Okay, let me bless you. Let me put your hip out of joint so you walk with a limp for the rest of your life. Look at Lazarus. I don't know what it was like at the table at Mary and Martha's house after Jesus rose him from the dead, but I'll bet you couldn't shut the guy up. Think about people in our day, well, in the last century, I think about Joni Erickson Tata at 17 years old, dives into a lake and breaks her neck and she praises God for it every day since, has come to prominence in Christian circles, written a bunch in like 40 books and all of that, out of adversity. Corey Ten Boom, hiding Jews during the Holocaust, or during World War II, and, and they're getting taken off to uh, one of the German concentration camps seeing her family executed, going on to be greatly used out of the adversity. Because of the physical infirmity that I suffered, Paul says, you got the gospel preached to you. So is there room in your theology for that? In John chapter 16, and then we'll close, Jesus says, these things I've spoken to you that in me you might have peace. In the world, you're going to have trouble. In the world, you'll have tribulation. Tribulation is a Bible word for trouble. In the world, (laughs) you're going to have trouble. But be of good cheer. Cheer up. I've overcome the world. That's the God that we serve.